What a great week last week was, being all together up in Lowell. I, I would bet most of you probably don't get the Lowell Sun um, delivered to your house. That would be my bet. Uh, but if, if you did, you would have seen uh, Grace Chapel on the front page talking a little bit about our service last week. Um, a little over 4,000 of us all gathered together. Some of our 10 worship services across five venues and four campuses. It's just a great morning. We really uh, sense God's work. Even, you know, with, with those baptisms, it was, we had so little faith, we only had enough stuff for like 50 people. <laughs> and uh, over 100 people were baptized. What a great, great day it was. Over our Lenten series, about 10 weeks ago, we jumped into John 13 through 16. And as we jumped into John 16, we saw that there's so much going on with the Holy Spirit. And we've sensed from you and from the Lord that, we wanted a little bit more of this stuff about what, it, what does it look like to be a spiritual person? What does it look like to give God room to work among us spiritually? And so we, we decided to do a series called More, um, ironically enough. So, so we, we added a series called More, and then we got through our series called More, and we realized we still had a couple things we needed to say. And so we extended the series called More. And uh, today we're going to be jumping into what I think is this really, really important question. And it's, what does it mean to, to have spirit, to be spirit, to get more of God's Holy Spirit? Something's stirring in us and we want to know what it means. Many of you have probably tried to experience something spiritual in your lives. Otherwise, you probably wouldn't show up at church. You, you probably have a story of some way that God has connected with you, whether it was through a, a special moment or whatever. Uh, we try lots and lots of different ways to experience, to kind of break up this, uh, this veil that is, is between this physical world and the spiritual world. We want to see a little bit beyond. Um, I had a, a friend in college who was, he was a cross-country runner, really intense guy, and uh, when he started following Jesus, he thought, well, if a little bit of Jesus is this good, I want all of it. And uh, this buddy, he just kind of, he went for it in every single way. He would, he'd get up every morning and pray for like an hour and a half. And he'd get up every morning and he'd read his Bible as long as he could. He, I think he read through his Bible like four times that first year that he was walking with Jesus. He was really, really intense because he wanted more of God. He wanted to hear God's voice. He wanted to see God. He wanted to experience the spiritual realm. A lot of us do some of those same things, maybe on a smaller level. Uh, maybe you go to a retreat center every once in a while for a day of prayer and to connect with God. Um, you know, maybe you go for a sunrise walk or a walk in the evening to hear God's voice or to, to uh, connect with God and with nature. Uh, maybe, maybe many of you read the Bible to get to know God and to experience his voice in a, in a real and tangible way. Some of us, we, we pray for charismatic gifts and we pray that the Spirit will come in such a powerful way that it's visible and physical and it's a miracle. And that happens sometimes. Um, some of our charismatic and Pentecostal brothers and sisters, they, they believe in what's, what's called the second blessing, which is they, they get baptized again so they can get more of the Spirit. Um, we're all, even maybe camps and conferences, getting a bunch of people together, all focused on God, praying and worshiping. It can be a transcendent moment, one of, the, one of those moments where the veil seems really thin between heaven and earth. 
So how do we get more of this spirit? How do we feel it and breathe it? Is it just a feeling? Is it just an emotion? Is it a state of mind? Or is it a reality? Is it something that's tangible that can be held and experienced? How do we feel like we can get more of the spirit in our lives? Um, some people throughout history, they, they've uh, resorted to a sort of what's called dualism. Uh, it, it's saying that everything that is physical, everything that's real and natural and, you know, something you can touch and taste and feel and hear, that that's bad. Everything flesh and earth and creation, that's all bad. And everything spirit is good. Um, there's been this belief throughout history that certain pockets of people have really uh, held on to, even, even within kind of the Christian community. And this has been a, a problem and a question for a long, long time. What is the relationship between this flesh, earth, creation stuff and the spiritual reality that we can't see? God. How, how, what, it, what is that relationship? And this guy, N.T. Wright, he's, he's a historian that has thought an awful lot about this question in relation to the New Testament, looking at that first century and kind of teasing out what, what did the Jews believe, what did the Greeks think, and what does the Bible say about this relationship between physicality and spirit. This is, this is what N.T. Wright has to say. He says, the New Testament is deeply, deeply Jewish. And the Jews had for some time been intuiting a final physical resurrection. They believed that the world of space and time and matter is messed up, but that it remains basically good, and God will eventually sort it out and put it right again. Belief in that goodness is absolutely essential to Christianity, both theologically and morally. But Greek-speaking Christians, influenced by Plato, saw our cosmos as shabby and misshapen and full of lies. And the idea was to make it right, not to make it right, but to escape it and leave behind our material bodies. The church at its best has always come back towards the Hebrew view, but there have been times when the Greek view was very influential. So you have two different views. The Jewish view is that this world has some stuff that's messed up about it, but that it's essentially good and God's going to make it right again. And then you have the Greek view that comes from Plato. It's called Platonic Dualism. And what it says is that there's two competing forces in the world. One's good and one's evil. The good one is spirit and it's not fleshly. And the bad one is flesh and reality and all the things in nature. Um, we see Christians have taken up that Greek view over and over and over again. Um, you see in the Desert Fathers, this is the first three or four centuries of the church, what they, what they felt was that being around people made them sin. They, they felt that uh, being in community with people that didn't care about God as much as they did, it made them bad. And so what they did was they took themselves and they put themselves in the desert, in the, in the deserts of the Negev and of Sinai, and they just get out of the city and go live by themselves, and then they would beat up their body so that they could experience spiritual things. They would fast, they'd actually hit themselves, like all sorts of ways to beat up their flesh so that they could have more spirit. Um, we see this in monastic movements um, like the Benedictine monks. Now, uh, I, know, I know many of you have been parents at some point, and uh, maybe those first few months of life or maybe after the four-month sleep regression that we all hit, um, we, we have these days where we live in a dream state where you, you, you muddle around because you haven't had any deep sleep, you haven't had any REM sleep, and you're just kind of stumbling around, and everything feels hazy. 
The Benedictine monks, they actually created a schedule so they could feel that way all the time. They're insane. I don't get it. But what they did was they, they would wake up throughout the night um, and they would pray every about hour throughout the night um, just so they could be very spiritual. And I'm sure they felt weird because you just felt, you feel like you're in a dream state because you, your brain is going crazy. It's literally going crazy. Um, but we, we've tried ways to kind of get rid of the flesh and, and live in this spiritual reality. Um, to, to be fair, there are a few people in the Bible that were told to be that way. We see John the Baptist, he was told to go out into the desert, to be alone. He was told to be a voice calling out from the desert, a remnant of, of God's people saying, make way for the Lord, he's coming. Now, now John was a special case and a couple of the prophets were a special case in that same way. But, but that was not the way that Jesus lived. He lived as if this spirit were real and true and active, even in the midst of this godless world that he had to move through. That was the scandal of Jesus eating with tax collectors and prostitutes, of speaking to that woman at the well, touching the lepers, and, and walking into the houses of Gentiles. Um, what they believed is that if they had contact with things that were impure, with things that weren't godly, they would be tainted by it. That was what the Jewish world thought at that time. But what did Jesus say? No. I, God coming down in a, in a body, God in a fleshly way, is going to live among people. And what we see is that Jesus was the firstborn among this new spirit. That those who sought more spirit and less flesh, Jesus was the firstborn of this new way. Instead of Jesus' uh, spirit-infused holiness and goodness, um, being tainted, being, being made impure by other people's sin, the opposite happens. When Jesus, God, comes in spirit and in truth and in life into people's lives, what happens is his holiness and his goodness, they rub off on other people. It, he doesn't get tainted by other people's sin. He actually transforms people's lives and brings healing and peace everywhere he goes. And this is the guy that we follow. He taught his way, and, and we're called to live like Jesus, who was God, who came down in flesh. And, and the book of Acts tells us that the Holy Spirit, he came to dwell in us. So dualism doesn't work. This spirit flesh tearing apart bad and good doesn't work if God's spirit has to come and live in these bodies of us. Um, book of Acts tells us the Holy Spirit came to dwell in us. And uh, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that our bodies are God's temple, his presence. Instead of being just in Jerusalem, in the Holy of Holies, in the temple, God's new dwelling place is in the hearts of people, in the hearts of these fleshly incarnate people. Something happened. Something happened along the way and our bodies went from being a part of this broken world to something, a place where God dwells in this world. Uh, instead of the temple in Jerusalem, he now dwells in us. So what happened here? Um, I'm sure that many of you have engaged on some level with Romans uh, chapter seven and chapter eight. There's a lot going on and we're just gonna blow through it, but uh, I wanna touch on some really key points to understand this kind of flesh-spirit divide that shouldn't be that divided. So Romans, it kind of leads like a, like a theological treatise 
or a thesis. It's, it's written to believers who live in the center of civilization in Rome. It's one of the largest cities in the ancient world, um, really late antiquity. It's, it's meta, metropolitan, it's religious, it's pagan, and it's Greek. The Romans had taken on the Greek way of thinking and being. They had taken on all the reasoning of Plato and Socrates as their religious way of being. Um, and, and that's really important to understand when Paul is speaking here in Romans 7 and 8. Um, we see, we're going to jump into kind of the end of chapter 8, and then we're going to work our way back. The end of chapter 8 in verses 19 through 22 gives us a, a picture into what's going on in this passage. Verse 19 starts this way. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in pains of childbirth right up until the present time. What's going on here? Well, it's basically saying that we have all these ways that we think that the world should be. We, we think that the world should work. We think that things should be good. Um, there's these vestiges of how God created the world in his image, good. He, he proclaimed it to be good. The goodness of God is built into creation. But you and I know that it's not that way all the time. We know that we experience sin and death and frustration about the way this world is. You know that we have to work hard to keep this earth in shape so that it doesn't spew us out as a species. You know that this world isn't the way that it was meant to be. Um, creation is subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from bondage to decay. So we know something's wrong, we, we can feel it in our bones. Uh, C.S. Lewis, he, he talks about this kind of dualism and the brokenness of the world this way. He says, there are only two views that face all the facts. One is the Christian view that this is a good world that has gone wrong, but it still retains the memory of what it ought to have been. The other is the view of dualism. Dualism means the belief that there are two equal and independent powers at the back of everything, one of them good and the other bad, and that this universe is the battlefield in which they fight out an endless war. I personally think that next to Christianity, dualism is the manliest and most sensible creed on the market, but it has its catch in it. Now, uh, he, was a, he was a Greek literary scholar, so he knows his stuff. And what he's saying is that Dualism works except there's this catch. Dualism is a good way of seeing things except it doesn't include all of the information. And the catch is this. If our bodies are bad, if this fleshly world is bad, if the created order is bad, and all the spiritual stuff out there is good, for us to see and experience the spirit, our bodies have to go away. Our bodies keep us from experiencing the spiritual world. Christianity takes, in, takes that into account, and Romans 7 and 8 really explains what's going on here. Our bodies, they can be redeemed. Our bodies are broken, and they're a part of this fallen world, but somehow they become God's temple. Paul speaks to this in Romans 7. He, he lays out this argument that the only way we can, we can get out of, so we had this, he uses a metaphor of marriage. 
And he says, we had this old marriage, and it was to the law. And the law showed us that we were sinful and full of death and decay and destruction. Okay? So we had this old marriage, and it was bad. It was kind of an abusive relationship. Sin and death, it, it, it hurt us all the time, but we couldn't leave it because the only way to get out of marriage is by death. Now, now, this is true. This is even true today. The only real way to get out of marriage is by death. You're still stuck with that person being around somewhere in the world, even if you get divorced. The only way that the marriage contract stops being in force in God's law is through death. Good news. Good news. We died. I don't know if that's good news to you, but, but it is good news. We died to the law. We died to sin and death. No longer are we beholden to the law. Well, how did we die if we're still here, if our bodies are still alive? We participated in Christ's death. When Christ died on the cross in our place for our sins, he made a way for us and our bodies to be redeemed for his purposes. It's kind of a crazy thing. All of a sudden, there's a way for these fleshly, sinful bodies to be God's holy dwelling place. We died to our abusive old, um, old wife or husband, and now we're married to the Spirit. All of a sudden, there's a new way of being. And uh, so, so what does this have to do with being spiritual? Um, Paul is, is dealing with this question, and he's, he, he's even talking about his frustration with his own body. This is what he says. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? And then he says, he gives us the answer, but thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. What he's saying here is that there's no condemnation. There's, our body doesn't need to be destroyed for what we've done now. Jesus has taken that on, and our bodies are being redeemed for his purposes. That's why dualism doesn't work, is because we are people. Our bodies aren't dead. Our bodies aren't dead so that the spirit would be free from the evil influence, which, which is that platonic dualism. But we are not disembodied spirits. Um, we're, we're not going to roam the cosmos as these, uh, these spiritual beings. There's, in heaven, we're not going to be ghosts, okay? Um, we're never described as spirits without bodies. In case you didn't know this, when you get to heaven, you get a body, like your spirit is made to be in a body. That's the way it works, okay? So this body, it's gonna go away, but we get a body. It's got to be connected. They cannot be separated. The spiritual and the body, they go together. They can't, one cannot move without the other. Heaven isn't this spiritual place with like ghosts that walk through walls as if physics didn't matter. It's, it's not, it's, it's a real physical place. And what we're told in Revelation is that the new Jerusalem is heaven and earth coming together. That God is going to make this physical and spiritual world come together into one true place that worships God. So we died to that old nature, that way of the flesh, so that our bodies could be the dwelling place of God's spirit. 
But the flesh seems so bad, doesn't it? Like our bodies, uh, my body makes me want to sin. I, I don't know if yours does, but my body, it tempts me. It, uh, it's bad for me. My body's bad for other people in this world. We, we don't get rid of them, though. We don't get rid of these bodies. So what, what's the solution? How do we live in these fleshly bodies, united with God's Spirit, and move towards the spiritual life that he's called us to? Well, good news. Romans 8 tells us. Um, we don't get rid of our bodies, but there is a way for us to live a spiritual existence in this world. And Romans 8, it walks us through what it looks like to live a life full of God's spirit in our fleshly world. It kind of contrasts the two. And I have a, um, a diagram here that kind of lays out the two. So you got the flesh versus the spirit. This is like WWE SmackDown. Who's gonna win? We got the flesh versus the spirit. In, in our flesh, we get death and we're hostile to God. And in the flesh, we don't submit to God's laws. We're unable to submit to God's laws. We cannot please God. We do not belong to Christ. The body is dead because of sin, and it's a slave to fear and sin. Now, this is the way of the flesh, but the way the Spirit looks completely different. The way the Spirit leads to life and peace. The way of the Spirit is a life controlled by the Spirit. Our spirits are alive because of the righteousness of God. God, through the spiritual life, he gives us life to our mortal bodies. Our, our bodies are infused with the new life that comes from God. We, we're told that we're sons and daughters of God, that we've been adopted into his family if we walk in the spirit. Um, we're told not only are we sons and daughters like a, like a distant father, but we're told to call him Abba or Daddy. Like it's this intimate term of closeness with God when we're united with him. Um, we're told that we're not only kids, but we're real kids who get to be heirs and co-heirs with Christ. That we are a part of God's plan for a future. That's a good thing. Uh, so, so where does this get us? Um, so we were, we were in this bad, abusive marriage with sin and death and, and the flesh. And Romans 7 says that we were unspiritual, we were sold as slaves to sin, and that came from the law. But when Jesus died and we believed in him, his death killed the law. We're no longer beholden to it, and we now live in the new way, in this spiritual way. So now there is no condemnation. We won't be destroyed for our sins because Jesus sets us free from the law of sin and death. He fulfilled the law so that we might live as spiritual beings once again. We're not just getting rid of our old abusive wife or husband. We're getting a new one. And it's a, it's a great new obligation. It says this. Uh, Romans 8, 13 says that if we live according to the sinful nature, we'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death, death the misdeeds of the body, you will live because those who are led by the Spirit of God, they're sons of God. So more spirit doesn't mean less body. It doesn't mean less fleshiness. It means that our bodies and our nature, our fleshiness is, is now the temple, the dwelling place of God under the control of the Spirit. So what does it look like? We're talking about it, but what does it look like to experience more of God's presence, that spiritual reality? Well, let's go back to those very first verses at the end of chapter 8 in verses 18 and 19. It says this, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation 
for the children of God to be revealed. The creation waits with eager expectation. It's easy to miss that line, but it's vital to understanding this passage. This is the way and this is the reason that God gave us his spirit. The world's waiting with eager expectation because the whole world knows this isn't the way it's meant to be. The world feels the pains. Um, it, it says that uh, like as if it were uh, the pangs of childbirth. That's how bad the earth feels. But the world is waiting for you. But all of creation is waiting with eager expectation for you to be revealed as spiritual people. We're told that, uh, you know, basically, the Spirit will rule in our hearts and it will make the world a place that it was meant to be. No longer are followers of Jesus the ones that are causing the pain and death and disease. And instead, uh, we ought to be a part of God bringing peace a renewed world everywhere we go. God's plan for this creation and for its renewal is for you and I to be revealed as God's spiritual people who live in the new way. But it doesn't happen all at once, right? I mean, look at you guys. Look at me. We're not there. We're not living in a world in, in ourselves. We're not living in a new way, in the spiritual way. The world isn't overrun with goodness yet. God hasn't restored the world to the way that it ought to be, even when one out of five people on earth say that they're followers of Jesus. We see in this passage and throughout Jesus' teaching that the whole thing doesn't come all at once. So we're expecting God to work in powerful ways, but it's not all gonna happen all at once. The kingdom doesn't rain down and conquer the sin of this world right away. And that's for a really good reason. And that really good reason is you and I are a part of it. You and I in this world would not exist if God wanted to get rid of sin and death and destruction because you and I are doing it. We're a part of it. And God wants to redeem as many people as possible so that we can be transformed by the Spirit and become a part of God's renewing of this world. We're, we're told in 2 Corinthians 1 and Ephesians 1 that the Spirit is a deposit, that it's a down payment for God's kingdom that's coming. It's, it's a part of what God will do, but it's, it's not the whole thing. It's now, it's real, but it's not yet complete. We see Jesus say, say the same thing in uh, Matthew 24 and 25 uh, when he says that the disciples are going to see his kingdom come in power. Last week, we talked about Pentecost. Pastor Brian talked about Pentecost. We saw God's kingdom come in power on Pentecost. 3,000 people hear the gospel in their own language and repent and then are baptized. I don't know about you, but that's God's kingdom coming in power. But it's not the whole thing. It's a part. It's now, but not yet the whole. And, and it's interesting that the Holy Spirit comes on Pentecost. Pentecost is, is a Jewish festival. It's not this Christian thing. It means 50 days after the first planting. And uh, it was a festival of thanksgiving. It was called the festival of the first fruits because it was the first harvest they would have in a season, would be that week. And they would celebrate and they'd take all of the, um, they'd take the first fruits, those things that they had taken from the trees and from the ground, and they would offer them as a thanksgiving to God for what he'd done but it was also a thank you to God for how you're going to provide 
through the harvest in the summer and in the fall. That's an interesting thing. The Holy Spirit came on Pentecost because it was a down payment. It was just the first payment of many of God's Spirit coming in power. The Spirit is meant as the same first fruit, a promise before the whole thing was going to come in the end. And God is patient because he knows that you and I are slow learners. He knows that it's going to take us a while to get there. So, so now we have this new way of being, uh, spirit people instead of law people, uh, controlled by the spirit rather than the sinful nature, sons and daughters of God. And, and now we've established that being a spiritual person is a very physical thing. It happens in and through these bodies of ours. Having more of the Spirit, we know it gives us life and peace. It gives us immortal bodies. It makes us sons of God, co-heirs with Christ. But more Spirit means being controlled by the Spirit. Let me say that again. More Spirit means being controlled by the Spirit. Whoa, whoa. Who said anything about giving up control? I'm... I am in control. No one tells me what to do. I'm an independent, 100% American man. No one's going to tell me how to live my life. No one's going to tell me what to do because this is my life. Romans 8 says the spiritual way is different. You, however, are not controlled by the sinful nature but by the Spirit if the Spirit of God lives in you. There's something changing. This is the turning point. This is what makes our bodies able to be the dwelling place of God. This is when we are sure that we're one of God's kids is when we give up control. This is the move to getting more spirit, more of God. It's giving up control. It's, it's giving up being a slave to fear and instead living God's way as his son or his daughter. Um, I don't know about you, but I, I wasn't just joking when I was talking about con- control and my my need for control that's the way i live I, i live as if i have everything i need to do what i need to do i spend nearly every day living under the delusion that i am in charge this is a normal thing you just ask malia she'll tell you i i live this way um and i'm i'm fortunately smart and capable so it doesn't show that often how incapable i am But um, what I'm finding is that even if I can make a lot of things happen and I can do a lot of things, uh, there are are moments and times in my life and in the lives of you guys when I walk through your your pain and your hurt as I walk through those those tough times when it's too much. Where this week was one of those weeks where I just didn't have everything I needed to make everything work. And it was finally a moment where God could get a hold of me and remind me that I'm not in control, that I don't have everything I need, that I'm deeply dependent on God. And that's the beginning. What does it look like then for us to give up control? Well, uh, it it starts with reality. It starts with a, a, a posture of humility towards God All we're saying is, God, we agree that we don't have everything we need on our own. We acknowledge that we didn't create ourselves. 
We don't make our food. We didn't make the sun. We didn't make the world or anything in it. We didn't give ourselves life. We don't create the oxygen that we breathe. We're just living in reality when we humbly say, God, I'm dependent on you. This is the beginning of a spirit-controlled life. Walking in the spirit is not hard work. I don't know if you realize that, but walking in the spirit is not hard work. If it is hard work, you're doing it wrong. You need to readjust your, uh, your grip. If it's, if it's hard work, you're doing it wrong. It's not a strain or a struggle physically. It's really letting go. It's loosening our grip on our way of doing things. Jesus told us that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. The yoke of a rabbi is his teaching. What he's saying is my teaching is not a list of 800 rules to follow that's gonna tie you up morning to night, making sure you do all these things. But my yoke is easy and my burden's light. And it wasn't because we have everything we need in ourselves. Uh, Paul wants to make sure that we get that same thing here in Romans 8. In verses 26 and 27, he says, in the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. We don't have everything we need, but walking in the control of the Holy Spirit is easy. It's just letting go, trusting God, walking in His way instead of our own. That, pro that uh, verse about the Spirit's help comes right before this promise. In verse uh, 28, it says that God works all things together for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. This is God's promise. When we let go of control to the Spirit, we experience God's good plan for us. So, so getting more of God, getting more of this Spirit, it comes with having less of our way of doing things. That's the answer. More of God means less of our way. More of the Spirit's control means less of our control. Walking in the Spirit, it, it requires different habits, it requires different rhythms, and it requires different liturgies. Let, let me unpack that for you. But this is the heart of finding God more in our lives. This is what we're looking for. Our habits are everything that we do. They shape us, um, especially when they happen over and over again. You know this, you know that the things that you do are an expression of who you are, but the things that you do, they make you who you are. Brain science in the last decade has demonstrated this over and over and over again. That the things that we do, they shape how we see the world. We, we know that when we create these little neural pathways in our brains, it changes the way that our brain works. When we do the same thing over and over and over again, it creates these ways of seeing and doing that can't be undone. Um, and, and you see this even like in muscle memory. You know, like I drive home if I drive to Watertown. I just can't help it. Like if I'm driving from a different town, I just start going towards the streets that lead to my house because I've done it so many times over and over again. Even when I'm planning to come here to the church for a meeting, I'll find myself in my driveway and I'm like, oh man, I just, what, where, where am I? What am I doing? You just do it because those are the streets you take. I turn on common street and I turn, you know, like you just have those ways of doing things. Um, 
But our habits have to change if we want the spirit because spiritual habits are different than fleshly habits. The things that we ought to be doing that will shape us into God-like people, that will shape us into spirit-controlled people are doing the things that the spirit tells us to do. Prayer. We spend time in God's presence and we learn about him and his way of doing things by being around him, by listening. Bible reading is a way to be transformed as we read God's way of doing things, as we understand more what he's up to and how he's dealt with people in the past. When we hang out with Jesus' people, when we hang out with each other, we're transformed because we learn to walk in Jesus' way as we spend time together. Instead of us getting worse when we're together, hopefully we get better. Hopefully we walk better in the spiritual way. When we share our faith, when we tithe, when we live generously, when we give hospitality, when we study, when we work in our jobs, when we care for our families, when we're being selfless, when we're teaching the younger generations, these are the habits that form us into spirit-controlled people. It's our habits that make us into spirit-controlled people, and so we start with our outward actions, and over time it transforms us. But it doesn't do it on its own. The rhythms of our lives... They need to be different. Now, rhythm is, is the room that we leave for God and the Spirit in our lives. Are your daily and weekly and yearly rhythms, do they leave any room for God's Spirit to move? Do they, do they leave any room for God to give you more of himself? Do you have things that are not supposed to be a part of your schedule that God needs you to take out? Are you doing so much good stuff that your schedule means there's no room for God? Are you doing too much church stuff so you can't experience God and live the way he's called you to? Are you working so much that there's not room for the other things that God made you for? Our schedule has to change. Our habits, our rhythms, and our liturgies. Uh, James K.A. Smith, he talks about our liturgies is uh, the way that we do our habits and our rhythm. It's, it's the, the tact that we take when we do them. So it's not just doing them, and it's not just doing them at the right proportion in our lives, but it's how we do them. Uh, th this looks like, uh, do we do things in the power of the Holy Spirit? Do, do we do things for God rather than for ourselves? Do we, do we do the things that we do exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Are we, are we doing things in God's way? Do we come to church prepared and expectant for God to meet us here, or do we just rush in hoping that it happens while we're here? Uh, do we spend any time on Sunday mornings preparing for God to meet us? Uh, do we pray and, and focus our mind and our energy on God each day so that our whole day will be infused with his presence? Uh, do we walk through life looking for God to work and see where we can join him in his work? These are all the questions that we ask when we're trying to form our lives in the spirit-controlled way. Trying to give up control, get rid of the things that aren't a part of God's way, and doing things God's way. Now, just a caveat, our habits, if we change them, our rhythms, if we change them, our liturgies, if we change them, they don't give us the spirit. They don't give us more spirit on their own. What they do is they set the table for us to be attentive to God. Um, so just like when I do the dishes at home 
and I take care of a few of the household chores, uh, it doesn't make for a good relationship with my wife. It, she likes me more. She's less mad at me when I help around the house. But doing the things, it doesn't make for a good relationship. But what I have found is that if I help with the dishes and if I help around the house and if I help with the bedtime routine of our daughter Elsie, what happens is when Elsie goes to bed, there's time. All of a sudden, we have a few moments together to share, to talk about our lives, to ask questions, to pray. It's the same way with God. If we organize our lives around His way of doing things, our, our habits and our rhythms and our liturgies in a way that makes room for God, what happens is God finds us because we're, we're giving Him room. We're giving Him a space in our lives to meet us. It's an important thing. It's not the habits, it's not the rhythms, it's not the liturgies that make us spiritual, but God meets us as we walk with him in those things. Uh, I'd love to encourage you to read The Practice of the Presence of God by Brother Lawrence. He was a, he was a kitchen hand in a monastery, and uh, people wrote about his life afterwards because he found this way to walk with God in the midst of everyday life. And it's, it's just a bunch of uh, stories of how he would talk about walking with God in the midst of his chores and in the midst of his work and in the midst of going to the market. He found ways to connect with God and even the mundane things. And lastly, this is, this is God's plan for us to walk in his way, controlled by the Spirit, to get more Spirit, but it's not for you. It's, it's not for us. It's not a selfish thing so that we can feel more peace and joy and happiness. It's not for our personal enjoyment. It's for the life of the world. The whole world is eagerly waiting with expectation for you to be revealed as the spiritual people God made us to be. Imagine if everyone in this room, uh, in both hours, uh, we went out and God walked with us through each moment. And that we were looking for ways that God was at work and we were joining him in that. What if uh, each of us gave ourselves and our treasures generously? What if we practiced a sort of radical hospitality to our neighbors, to our family, to our coworkers? And what if our families were transformed by us walking in the spirit rather than the flesh? We know the answer. The way of the spirit, it leads to life and peace. And when we're controlled by the Spirit, we have life in these mortal bodies. We become children of God, and we call Him Daddy. All of creation eagerly awaits you. So what are we waiting for? Now's the time. This is the week. Let's start giving up control to God. Start giving up control to His Spirit. And then after that comes the intention to change the way we do things, our habits, our rhythms, and our liturgies. And over time, we see the promise come to life. God working out everything for the good of those who have been called according to his purposes. We see more of him. We feel more of his spirit. And our worship is infused with his presence. And this is the word of the Lord. Let's, uh, let's take a minute now. Let's pray together and... Uh, Maybe you're feeling like it's time to start giving up a few things. Start to, time to change your grip and release control and start walking in a spirit-controlled life. That's great.
Uh, if not, if you're not there and you're just, you know, here because it's Memorial Day and your family guilted you into it, that's fine. <laughs> We're so glad you're here. And, uh, you know, just let, you know, ask God what he's teaching you and working in you through that. Let's, let's take a minute to pray together. Lord God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your presence. Thank you for a time to worship and to know and be known by you. Lord God, we want more of your spirit. We want to be controlled by your spirit. We want to walk in your spirit. We want this veil between heaven and earth to go away and for the reality to be our flesh and our spirit as one. Help us, God, to do that. Help us to change our habits, to change our rhythms, to change our liturgies so that we walk with you. And as the world eagerly awaits us to be revealed as the spirit people you made us to be, God, don't let us get in the way of it. Help us to give you control. In your name we pray, amen.